Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I was born and raised in 3HO community and started this podcast with several intentions in mind, and I read them at the beginning of every episode. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other therapy and support as needed, draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. Today, I want to welcome a guest, Vandy Crane, to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast. Vandy Crane is the author of My Body, My Soul, 
One Woman's Journey to Reclaim Both, as well as the founder and director of Rise in Love Foundation, a grassroots nonprofit whose mission is to support individuals, families, communities, and companies in understanding and healing the individual and collective mother wound by bringing women of all nations together to heal their connection, to heal through connection, culture, and conversation. A process known in indigenous cultures around the world as rematriation. Vandy, formerly Pavandeep Kar Khalsa, initially came to learn about Kundalini Yoga 3HO in 2009 through a series of serendipitous spiritual experiences after an early life of child trafficking and addiction. She's here today to offer her unique perspective and share her own experience in the community as an indigenous woman, a survivor leader, and professional disruptor. Vandy lives in Northern New Mexico and on ancestral Apache and Pueblo territory. She herself is of Washashi, Salagi, and European American descent. Her partner, John Swiftbird, and their daughter, Tatanka Skawin, Tatanka Skawi, Tata Swiftbird, are enrolled members of the Oglala Lakota Nation. She and her family are passionate about cultural preservation and keeping their traditional values alive through their grassroots nonprofit work. Vandy and their daughter are also featured in the up and coming documentary, Women of the White Buffalo, to be released in seven languages internationally this coming month. Vandy's professional and academic background include addictions, counseling, trauma-informed care, and integrative studies. She is also an outspoken CSET, child trafficking survivor leader, who has brought a lot of awareness and impactful change to the communities and cases that she has been involved with. You can donate to her profound work um, at riseandlovefoundation.org, and it will be in the show notes. So I want to welcome and thank you for being here, Vandy Crane. Have dohe relatives, and thank you so much, Guru Nishan, for having me on your show. I can't tell you how much I respect your work and just how powerful your intentions are and witnessing um, the liberation that people are experiencing through your just giving people a platform to tell their stories. So thank you, and thank you for inviting me to the table to share my experience as well. It's truly an honor. It really is. I, I, I... I learned um, about you when all this opened in 2020 and you got to share your writings in the um, Beyond the Cage Facebook group. And so I just, it means a lot for you to come forward and share this complexity and even your healing and the work that you're doing. So it, it, it I know it'll help a lot of listeners to um, hear this lens. Um, so before we begin, do you want to, do you want to lead us here? Yes, please. Uh, thank you. I'd love to uh, start with a prayer. Um, Idatsi, Wakanda, Wimuna. Creator, thank you. Thank you for everything from the water to the sky, the earth that gives us so much. Thank you for all of our relations, all of the truths that are being told. Pray for healing for all relations from the land, the sky, to all beings. 
pray for the highest truth, pray for universal justice, and pray that um, we're both guided today to say what needs to be said with the highest intent for healing and truth. Creator, thank you for everything that was, that is, and that will be. Thank you. Oh, thank you. As I said, it really means a lot to have you here. Um, I didn't know what rematriation was. I didn't even know a lot of language of indigenous culture, um, but I was familiar a little bit in the sense of um, just witnessing from afar. And I really uh, saw your writings in the group and witnessed and realized that you just have a whole story that was just like none other that I had read and your journey to self-reclamation was really quite moving. And that was just like a few pages you wrote on the Facebook group back in 2020. And over the last couple of months, I had the opportunity and the privilege to read your book and to really get a deeper lens. Um, and it's just so courageous. So again, thank you for the work you're doing and for the courage that it took to write your book and to put it on paper. Yeah. I don't even know where we want to begin, but I want to say that when I did read the perspective of you, it, it lit up in me a remembrance as a child of the drug rehab programs. And my dad, I remember one of my earliest childhood memories was my dad going away to teach and, and, and that was in Tucson and it was like a childhood, re there was a drug rehab. And that was just early teachings that I had remembered. So when I saw that the influence of Kundalini yoga at a particular time in your life had been so profound in your reclamation process, I felt like to listeners, it's really important for us to bring that level of complexity and hearing where wounding meets healing and right. how somebody's wounding can be somebody else's healing and the thing, and that there's not one right way here in all of this. So as we're talking about the predators within Kundalini yoga, within our community, within the world, giving your story really lends a whole nother level of understanding imperialism and colonialism and just all of it, you know, in the context. And, and the last several episodes I've done on, on the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast has been about really poking at the white supremacy and white exceptionalism and the, the, innate privilege we can't even see. And I know you had a lot to say with that because that was very influential for me in 2020 to see that lens. It was before I began to really unpack more of my own whiteness. So listeners, I want to br bring it home here with a story that's that's quite powerful. And I'm just going to put it on over to, to Vandy Crane here. Thank you. So thank you so much. And I want to thank all the survivors um, for their courage to come out. Um, because I know as a survivor, it's not easy to even um, reclaim your sanity because part of, you know, that victimization is that gaslighting and the, the, the chronic conditioning that you're crazy. Your victimization is just a part of your perception and you're just crazy. And that's, uh, that, that's a huge part of experience in being a victim, whether it's being in a cult, uh, being in a country that was built on the foundations of right, white supremacy, um, that gaslighting is chronic. Um, so it takes 
a lot to overcome and own your own story and have the confidence to believe in your experience. Um, so I wanna thank every survivor and honor their experience and their courage as well. And uh, I'm being called to, you know, as storytelling people, we, we learn from our stories and I've learned to tell parts of my life, um, to kind of cherry pick, to tell uh, certain perspectives or certain wisdoms I've learned through life. And uh, one of these stories is um, my, my first offender. I, I came from a mixed family. So there was a lot of uh, mixed racial family issues that I grew up with, white supremacy, uh, sexual abuse, um, domestic violence, alcoholism, PTSD from uh, every, everyone in my family was a veteran, um, classism, there, you name it, there were all these layers and I could probably talk forever just on that alone. But um, my first offender was my grandfather and uh, it was pre-verbal sexual abuse when I was around two and uh, I grew up with this anger that I couldn't explain. And I, I was blamed for that anger. Of course, I was a problem child and it was always about fixing me and never looking at the entire, um, the, the forest rather than just the trees that I was a third generation boarding school survivor, that there was domestic violence that included hate crimes in my family. Um, so I eventually, you know, worked through this anger and when a certain time came in my life, I realized that I was the only person in my family that had worked through my anger enough to be this abuser's caretaker when they were dying, um, when he was in hospice. And I didn't, I had fully come to recognize the offenses that he had committed against my family. I was going in there, not for him, but for me. Um, and it wasn't, a lot of people I think confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. My going to be this person's caretaker, to be my first abuser's caretaker wasn't reconciliation, it was forgiveness. Again, for me, it was the next step in letting go of the anger and being who I was, which is a completely heart-centered, compassionate being. And fast forward a few years, like, oh, and on his deathbed, he, even though intubated, was able to apologize, sort of, you know, choked out an apology. I was the only, because I was the only fam mem family member that was able to reach that point in my forgiveness, I was the only one who was able to witness his humility and his last act of realizing that the way he lived was not right. And fast forward several years later, uh, I guess it was right before the pandemic, uh, 2018, I believe we were up in South Dakota and we went out on a buffalo harvest and my car broke down in a buffalo pasture and no one had tools. No one knew how to fix the car. The fire department couldn't help. Everybody just kind of passed me by. And I remembered my grandfather. And even though he was this monster in my story, he had taught me something. And that was auto mechanics. And he taught me enough that I can fix pretty much anything with duct tape, bailing wire, and a zip tie. 
So I went up on a hill and I calmed my mind and I prayed and I saw the herd of buffalo and felt just that that medicine that we had just had the opportunity to harvest and looked down and realized I was standing in an ancestral sweat lodge site and then turned around and walked away after praying and tripped over a piece of bailing wire. And I went down the hill and I put that car back together and I got it running. And there was a chief and a firefighter and, you know, all these guys just standing around like this, you know, really impressed by the life skills that I had attained. And I started thinking about the nature of predatory behavior and it's everywhere. There's, you name it, you go to a car dealership, there's predatory behavior. You go to a school. There's predatory behavior, politics, predatory. There's predatory behavior everywhere. And it, to me, it's the thing that is at the core of all of our problems. Um, And if I had, for lack of better terms, canceled my grandfather and said, you know what? Everything he taught me is worthless. That human being was worthless. That human being had nothing to offer me and just scarred me for life. And I don't even want to think about him. I would have missed that gem that he offered me. Granted, he was a really wounded human being. And I can't even imagine what he grew up with, uh, the poverty and what he saw in wartime. And I, I really started learning to put myself in my offender's shoes and that since the beginning of time, there's been a balance of lightness and dark. And somewhere in that is balance. And we learn from both the night and we learn from the day. And if we throw out whatever's dark, we miss that the inherent wisdom that was there in the darkness. And there's always wisdom somewhere. So I guess I wanted to open up with that story um, because that in itself is a miracle to me. And um, even though my grandfather and I didn't have the best relationship, he's still an ancestor I call on when I need help. If I'm fixing a vehicle and I don't know what to do, I pray to him. I pray for his help because that's part of my DNA. I can't just say he was a predator. I'm going to discard him. That's discarding part of myself. So I've learned to not necessarily reconcile with predators, but confront what's at the issue of exploitation. Um, I, I think everything you just said is so well said in that predatory behavior and patterns live breed and exist everywhere. We're not going to escape not having them, right? They have bred into us because we've gotten so infused by it. And so the more we can reconcile that in us and watch how those behaviors have become us, it's in, in, um, it's being able to have both. Like once you do that within you enough, you're able to not just throw it all out. You're able to say, yeah, what can I extract that has actually made a difference in the becoming of who I am today? Right. Right. Exactly. And um, I have always been an outsider pretty much everywhere I go. I've never been of a community or I guess in the community. I'm not sure exactly how to word it. I've always been on the outskirts of everything and kind of, as you mentioned, like poking at things, you know, if this is the way something is supposed to be, then why is there this? And, you know, as, and I'm, I'm very skeptical about 
everything. Um, the way I ended up finding Kundalini Yoga was one of those experiences that you can only, um, I guess, really understand it when if it's your own experience. But it was a series of the synchronicities. I was at a place in my life that I, was, I think I was basically going through a psychosis, a trauma-induced psychosis. I had been sober for about six weeks. Since I was nine years old, I couldn't imagine life being sober. My grandmother was dying and had asked me to come home, and I didn't know how I was going to handle that grief sober. Uh, I didn't know how to do life at all. And uh, slowly, the conversations, and I should mention that year, I also had three traumatic brain injuries, so my cognition was not very, uh, was not at a very functioning level at that point. Um, and I, I had a lot of time by myself out in, living out in the wilderness um, up in the national forest. And uh, I started thinking. Can I pause you for a second? Can I pause you for a second? I remember reading this from your book that like the, what you're talking about that led up to what you're talking about right now. And mm-hmm. one of the things that really stood out to me and it happened a couple of times reading your work was you would at one point say, yeah, this time I'm 13. Oh yeah, by this time I'm like 15 and I would be like, what? The amount of things that had happened. And so it kept jarring my own sense of reality to read that in planes. And so I I want listeners to really hear that. Like it's not just you couldn't imagine being sober because you wanted to not be sober. It was like a life marinated in the only way to mask the pain of the existence was to use substances. And so I just wanted to pause and say, how are you going to handle that grief of if, does that make sense? Absolutely. Because if, if anyone knows about trauma, uh, a death will release a lifetime of trauma. If you've just been holding yourself together to function and you lose somebody that's very close to you, whether that relationship is a good or a bad relationship, it's going to bring up all the trauma. Um, And to not have addiction patterns that you were using to numb that pain. Instead, you were committed on this path to actually feeling what all that stuff was that was going to come to the surface. Here you were faced with the old pattern that says, no, just use some sort of substance to numb it out or what am I going to do with myself? So you're asking that kind of question. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for bringing in that context. And um, I, I was just really praying for clarity. And I remember going, uh, it was back in the day when Ojo Caliente had a really affordable night for residents before they became too bougie. Uh, and by the way, that's a sacred site too. That's a whole nother conversation. But um, I went there and I was invited to my first sweat lodge. And one of the things my grandmother had always told me when I was a child is learn our old ways. I didn't get to. It was illegal up until 1978. Um, so we had so much language loss and loss of ceremony and loss of culture because you would literally go to jail for practicing our own culture in our own homelands. So I was invited to that sweat lodge um, and I prayed harder than I had ever prayed. It was a Lakota um, medicine man who lived down here in New Mexico. And within a few days of that ceremony, I was trying to find my way into Santa Fe and got lost and 
just got emotionally overwhelmed and had a panic attack and looked up and saw a sign with an eagle on it. And an eagle is a big part of our uh, origin stories and um, our medicine for our prayers. So I said, well, okay, this must be a sign. And it was the Northern New Mexico Community College, which was a college I said I was never going to go to because of the reputation Española had. And I was actually trying to get into town to register at St. John's University. And um, I got lost. I ended up in there. I said, well, there's a sign. I went inside and there was a flyer for uh, Kundalini Yoga pilot program for the super health program. Um, And it was for addiction recovery since it was super health. So I said, well, I prayed for a way to stay sober. I prayed for a way to heal trauma and my prayers are being answered through this series of synchronicities. So that was a game changer for me. But at the same time, I also um, know from experience that when I'm brought into a situation, whether it's a company or whatever attracts me to situations or companies or communities, it there usually ends up uh, being a situation that blows up. Um, and that began when I started my path as a whistleblower when probably before that, but I first started realizing it when I was uh, 18 years old, when I had my first whistleblower case. Um, so I've just, even I'm going to pause child, you. I'm going to pause you on that. What I'm hearing you say, you're talking about how you are, are uh, the disruptor, the right, the professional disruptor and how you've come to know that when you end up in a space, a community, a culture, an environment, how that actually is kind of foreshadowing the break, the the explosion of truth that's that's resurfacing or needing to come to the surface of that, perhaps. Right, because I've learned that I can't keep my mouth shut. Um, I've tried; it does not work. I have nightmares. I get health issues from it. Um, I learned at a very young age that just to say it, and um, mm. it's uh, it's. I, I know that it comes at a great expense. Um, I, I've even lost, uh, like I, I was in 12 step groups for years and I, I've had AA sponsors break up with me over my need for conflict is what they call it. But really I just have high ethics, I believe, and want to discuss those things in any environment. Um, it doesn't matter what environment, but I'm going to bring up a discussion about values and how things are not in alignment. Um, and so was that significant for, um, is that a significant point for when you found Kundalini Yoga? Um, at first, I didn't realize it. Um, well, I guess to be completely honest, I always thought the community was funny. Like, uh, you know, being me and our indigenous, you know, indigenous communities, we joke about it, you know, it's like, and the cultural appropriate, there were a lot of things I was not okay with, but I was like, I prayed and here it is. So here I am. And I also want to point out to listeners that, you know, you brought up seeing a sign for um, super health and addiction, a pilot program for addiction recovery. And I really want to say this out loud because, you know, this, 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 began in the 70s. And there were all sorts of little early percolations and startings of um, 
kundalini yoga with a focal point uh, around addiction and addiction recovery and um and also just what that says super health kind of this idea that doing kundalini yoga could could create this kind of next level epitome of health consciousness, right? So we know that's all infused in in regular teachings, but I just want to point out that there's like a division that's really emphasizing trauma and addiction and recovery. And this is super health. It's still in in existence. And there are a lot of teachers that this is their primal focus. And there's also a lot of stories of massive benefit, And I want to say that out loud, too, because it's really important. The more that's honed in on removing all the appropriation, removing the mysticism and getting down to some of the real specific stuff that's getting scientific science and researched, that there's a lot that can be extracted that we get to still keep if if we choose to. And Absolutely. And to, to offer my gratitude to, to Mukta and um, Gurumit. Gurumit's been my mentor since that first class that I took, essentially. And there's just been women in the Sangit that I feel, you know, are doing their best to grow with what's going on. And um, they've been key in supporting me in learning to own my own voice. Well, I've always owned my voice, but to, to trust, um, to trust my perspectives, really, um, going back to that, learning to trust your perspective after years of gaslighting and, you know, being made to feel that whatever you're thinking is not, is not reality, you know? Um, so. Well, and when the, when the territory of your body is so early violated, it's not even your territory, right? So to, this is what trusting your perspective is about claiming territory, starting in your body and then extending outward. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us about that. So you were telling about the, uh, serendipitous experiences to help you the college saw the sign and you start practicing. Do you want to give, I mean, tell us about the experience and why this was uh, just like what the practice really became for you. Well, uh, as I mentioned in the book, it was like being shaken uh, awake. Um, And for me, uh, it was a way to start calling my spirit back to my body and it was a way for me to start learning how to take care of my body through like you said the more scientific um knowledge information that was shared in specific programs like super health so that was my first contact to 3ho and kundalini yoga was through a three hour a week class at night um i think for the first two semesters that was basically my contact was once a week. And um, and this is a I, part of you going to the community college or is this is just separate? This is like about you being enrolled. Mm-hmm. So you had to yeah. be enrolled in the school to be able to take this program. I think that you could have audited 
audited it if you weren't a student at the college, but they were offering it as a um, elective where you got credits and there were other other classes as well, you know, Kundalini Yoga for stress management or Kundalini Yoga for weight management. They had a couple of those classes as well. Um, so it was very, uh, it was in an academic environment. So I'm sure there were certain, it was presented and packaged a certain way. Um, and then I got to, I started going to events and I started getting to know actual sex, sex, second generation survivors such as yourself and hearing some stories. And I wasn't surprised. So you're saying at the time that you started proud of this, like 2009, you, as you got connected to maybe later, 2010, 11. Yes. Around 2010 or 11, when I started teacher training, um, one of the, uh, I don't know if it's the right terminology. She was like an assistant trainer. She was working on her hours to become a trainer through the, the academy. Um, she had shared with me that she was a survivor and there was a movement of survivors and the website. Um, I can't remember the name of the website, but I was introduced to that website. Um, and I, uh, it didn't really surprise me, to be honest. And I started poking around and asking the trainers because, you know, I'm curious and I like to be nosy. Uh, and of course, at first it, it was the gaslighting of the people that came out. Oh, it was this group. Um, I can't remember the name of the group, but some group that hated Yogi Bhajan that hired people basically to slander him or something like just, you know, stories to uh, as part of the cognitive dissonance. Um, and that was, I would say probably in the middle of my teacher training. Uh, and I, I went to the one in Santa Fe that lasted for nine months. So it was a long teacher training. It wasn't just like the month long immersion. So, you know, we'd meet for a weekend and I started getting closer, like I said, to that one trainer. I don't want to mention her name because it's her story. And, you know, when if she comes on, she comes on. But she started to disclose to me some of her experiences. And like I said, the website and as other former members, um, I don't want to mention any of the former members names, either members of the Sungit members, first generation Sungit members found out the work that I was doing with survivors. I remember one conversation where one man kind of got angry with me because he's like, why aren't you helping the, the 3HO Kundalini yoga survivors? I was like, well, I, I am just, you know, by being here, but victims, we have to claim our own stories. I can't tell their story for them. I can't, you know, um, I can't be the one to rewrite the story. That's their story. And there's the power and resources. Every victim has to reclaim their power. And that's how we become the victors um, over the stories. <sighs> so um, I just kept asking and I, I, I clearly remember somebody who I really love in the community repeating that story of um it being slanderous you know that there was no credibility behind the story and that part made me very sad because i i love this woman a lot 
and um, having the mother that I had has taught me to love somebody through the ugliest things that they could possibly do, but not be attached to what they're doing. I don't know how to explain it, but just kind of love them through the process of realizing what they're doing isn't right and just support them and compassionately poke that, you know, that wound, kind of peel back the veil a little bit at a time, you know, not to, because I've learned as a therapist, you know, if you try to drag the truth out of somebody with too much force or you tell them they're wrong, you're just going to get this. So um, it's almost like um, your title, the sole provocateur, you know, you're, you draw things out and I've learned to draw things out through love. And that's, that's the medicine that I've learned to just witness a process of a community unraveling or somebody unraveling and, and witness them with love and with compassion and the consistency of saying, I'm here. I'm here when you're ready. So this is early you're talking about. You're talking about all like in 2011 in your own teacher training, you you know are meeting people among the community, former members, former second gen, first gen, because you're, you're in New Mexico. And so you're already noticing that there's stories that are in secret that people aren't talking about. And then your, your teachers are gaslighting you by basically not you exactly, but just kind of referring the survivors, the people that have been harmed um, as slanderous and like kind of hearing those stories. So it wasn't 2020 that you began to hear that you started noticing that early in the community. Oh yeah. Really early because, Oh, and before I even enrolled in teacher training, I forgot about this part um, because uh, I part of our hobby, I guess, is being an investigative journalist and then being an MMIW missing and murdered indigenous women survivor. We're really good investigators. Like the, the FBI should be consulting with us. And sometimes they do. Um, but I started digging around on the internet about Yogi Bhajan and that's the first time I had found the court documents, um, the lawsuit and even before, because to come up with the money for teacher training was a big stretch for me at the time. I mean, even now it would be, um, but when I was a full-time college student, it was a big stretch. So I really wanted to investigate what I was investing in and I can't remember which trainer I asked, but it was basically the same story, the the same, uh, do we call it an urban legend that, you know, oh, slander, a hate group, um, people in India that don't like Yogi Bhajan for disclosing secrets, you know, this and that. And those stories are really harmful. And just to point out how these stories harm communities and uh, another way that th this community perpetuates um, stories like that, like where um, the 3HO Summer Solstice Festival is hold, held up on Ramdas Puri. For generations, it was said that that's Hopi land, which is a blatant lie. And that it was uh, given to our community or is given right. to Yogi Bhajan. And yeah. 
Right. And that it wasn't bought. It was actually bought. And before that, it was a Spanish land grant. And if anybody knows anything about New Mexico history, Spanish land grants were cre- created out of oppression, uh, brutality, uh, genocide, land theft, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that that narrative harms the neighboring community next door, the Capo Pueblo, who hasn't been allowed to do their sacred ceremonies on that land. And basically our culture, and, and I don't want to get too pan-Indian because that does a disservice to us too, because we have 593 federally recognized tribes. And each one of us has our own language, has our own beliefs, has our own culture, but there's, there's similarities. We can draw a line in similarities. And one of the biggest similarities is we don't own the land. We, uh, we don't own the land. We, the land doesn't belong to us. We belong to the land. And we have certain responsibilities that we have to keep up that we've been instructed to keep up thousands of years ago and when we don't do these ceremonies things get out of balance and you know that that that's one of our whole purposes as indigenous people is to keep a balance balance in every type of relationship we have whether it's our family members immediate family the people we pray with our community the land and all the animals around we always take into consideration the relationships we have with everybody else and everything else and how what we do is going to affect that relationship or that's our traditional way of believing so that that alone that construct of creating a story to silence others or uh, to discredit or disconnect others um, is one of those colonial constructs that we've just been, we, we've become so accustomed to, it's second nature to us. It's been part of this country for so long, since the beginning of the country, that it's written in the narrative and into the DNA at this point. And now we have our first Pluto returning from since the beginning of this country. And now everything's getting flipped upside down and you know blown open to where these truths are being um, more evident. Mm-hmm. Revealed in plain sight for more people to pay attention to. I want to go back to that point you're bringing up in all of that is the urban legends that that get regurgitated unconsciously and and they get that's what becomes an ethos. It's an ethos of a way of thinking, behaving, perpetuating. And without calling it into question, you don't say, huh, is that true? And I want to say this out loud because it was only in 2020 when when that started getting like publicly called into question, things that were unconscious to me that I didn't realize I still led my life by or my belief system by, even though I thought I had left a long time ago. So growing up in a culture where these urban, these we call it urban myth, but this these these patterns are kind of regurgitated. It's it's so historically colonialistic that we think it's us. We think it's normalized, and you're pointing it out is so valuable because you're basically saying you within our community you could notice the teachers doing that spewing the story that was the regurgitated story because it was a form of gaslighting but you could recognize it differently where maybe i couldn't because it was so normalized to me within the context of 3ho within your context you're just like oh yeah this is familiar it just has different packaging over it 
Exactly. And that's what capitalism and colonialism all is all about is how you package it, how you sell it and how you exploit the next person to make the next dollar. Gosh, I love this. It's such you explain. That's exactly what I remember you languaging in 2020 is you're like you brought it out of 3HO to be like, yo, this is what this is what colonialism has kept doing and kept doing to the land and then repackages it. So it's in a new shiny form. And we think, oh, that's not colonialism anymore. That's but it's just new forms of appropriation. Right. Like everybody now drives um, Toyota Priuses, right? Everybody thinks that uh, the battery-operated like electric cars or what Teslas now uh, are the, are the best, are the green of the future. Well, those are destroying tribal lands. Right now in Nevada, their uh, tribal elders are getting arrested trying to protect their ancestral lands because that these companies want to extract lithium. It's just individualism packaged up in this new ethos, like you said, thinking that we're doing something good when really it's the same old exploitation and um, extraction. Um, and, and that's, it, it makes me sad when I see people like, think that yoga is bad now, or kundalini is bad now, or that these ancient teachings that got exploited are bad now, because these teachings come from somewhere, they're really valuable, they come from our relatives in the East. And they were very harmed. You know, that's one reason I stopped going by Pavan Deep. Um, a Punjabi sister of mine said, you know, I feel this is harmful, you know. And I said, you know what, you are right, because I'm an indigenous woman. And people are just now realizing our own story as Osage people, Wajashi people, uh, our reign of terror in the 1920s, the Martin Scorsese film that's coming out with Leonardo DiCaprio. Our story is finally taking main stage. Um, the Killers of the Flower Moon. And it's, it's taken so long for these stories of how the exploitation just keeps going and keeps going. And it's just new language. Um, and oh, I, I wish there was just a way I could just put it in one sentence so everybody could understand it. But um, <laughs> yeah. Wish there was a bow, <laughs> a bow you could tie right around it, right? <laughs> <laughs> just wrap it up and somebody could open it and be like, oh, wow, I get it now. <laughs> yeah. Or if it was so simple as, you know, don't do this, do this, you know, and it's like I, I, I talk about that a lot when love and abuse is commingled. You can't pull it apart exactly if you have to dissolve what no longer what was never true. And that dissolving is a creation process. It's a death, rebirth, nourishment process. It's a tending and cultivating to the land process, Absolutely. you know? And so you're talking about ancient wisdom that belongs to us. And yet predators and people who have been preyed on in various cultures have extracted and taken pieces. And that's what makes a great cult leader. So to say, well, the practices we got are wrong. That's not exactly true. They might have been delivered to us in a form that have been predatory through unconscious patterns of behavior and other abuses that we're starting to learn about. But I hear what you mean about it's sad that this type of predatory behavior is showing up in all of our, it's, in our, it's everywhere. So it's not like there's something somewhere that's pure that hasn't been tainted. Absolutely. Well, you know, I still like to think that, um, uh... 
oh, what is the name of that tribe that uh, greeted the missionary with um, a barrage of arrows a few years ago, right around Thanksgiving? I would like to think that there's a couple tribes that still have not been exposed to colonial contact that still have that innocence. Um, mm. And they're, you know, they're the wisdom keepers in this way. They're the ones we really need to be protecting because there's not many of us that have been untouched by colonialism um mm. that that conditioned thinking that goes along with it and um the actually the song that i sent you to touch on that that really plays a big part in this this teaching um the musician lila june johnson her mother pat mccabe talks a lot about this how and, and so does lila june actually how uh <clears throat> Prior to the church and colonizers coming over here, women were demonized in Europe for 500 years before colonial contact here, before the indigenous people of these lands were demonized. And the, this de, de, demoni, demonization of connection to the earth and women and our, our medicine as women, our gifts as life givers and life nurturers which those teachings again were exploited you know with the whole 3ho cult thing but those are very indigenous teachings of our inherent power as wisdom as women because we actually communicate in the spirit world and bring life down from the spirit world and that's not something yogi bhajan made up that's ancient wisdom and that itself was demonized and then that became so normalized over 500 years of generations then it became it got brought over here um but our responsibility as indigenous women because we still have that connection to the land that we're on we're all indigenous to somewhere we all have indigenous ceremonies and ways of greeting the sun and watching the stars and star knowledge but we've been really removed from that but as an indigenous women in turtle island our responsibility is to awaken that in people through our own healing, through our own ability to connect with the lands and with uh, the way we as Indigenous women care for our families and our poor communities and just reminding people that we all had that at one time. I want to say thank you for that, for the reminder of that within our own bones, within our own blood. And I know in my healing that's what has led my extraction capacity building processes. It was, I knew there was truth within this commingled, predatory, infused, sadistic, sexual convolution mess that I felt in my body. But my mind had contexted this as this pure white, blah, 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 teaching of super consciousness. And so I had this level of exceptionalism embedded in with knowing that truth exists. And so how do you pull that apart? How do you pull exceptionalism out, away from knowing that you have truth that could be of, of great wisdom? Both can be true, right? And so you're, you're speaking to that this lives in our cellular system. And then as, as women prior to the assault of the land of Turtle Island and indigenous cultures here, I read that in that music you sent over five to 8 million women called witches burned. And, and these were the indigenous connected to the land using 
herbs and listen spirits and all and and this is so important as we're facing 3HO kundalini yoga indoctrination in whatever way that shows up for you in your own body and that the wisdom goes beyond the way he packaged it yes. and delivered it and the way that the teachers that learned from him are currently packaging it. And we have to become better decipher, like wisdom deciphers right? Noticing the predatory behavior from the wisdom within it. And I think that's what you talk about doing in your teacher training is you had alarm bells, you met people in the community and you had flags and you were what I now call in my life, noticing you were liking something and noticing what might not be good about it simultaneously while having the experience. Yes. Yes. And this is a trauma survivor informed perspective. I want to say this is high level trauma healing at this stage for you to do that tells me how much you were on a healing path of being able to notice like, Hey, I found this, you were reconciling inside yourself. Well, on one hand, I'm noticing this might not be good, but on another hand, I prayed for this. And I feel like this is the best thing for me right now. And this is all we can ever really do in knowing if something's good, a teacher's right, a, a doctor's right, a therapist is whatever, right. Is organizations that look nice and shiny on the outside might not be the healthiest choice for us, but only we can know if that's right. And we have to learn how to build that superpower in ourselves through the remembrance that it's always been our wisdom, our ancient wisdom all along. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I have a adopted Lakota mom and uh, she tells me, you know, indigenous values they were gifted to us. And we, we all have very similar values, courage, fortitude, prayer, generosity, kindness, um, that none of us can live those perfectly. But if we do our best to embody whatever values we say we embody, that's going to be our compass. That's going to guide us. And that's going to make our thoughts or our prayers or our, our intentions more powerful by having that spiritual integrity with that and that's in our dna that goes far beyond 3ho um and being being a spiritual warrior uh or be being a warrior you know these concepts go so much further than what was presented to us and um or, you know how how new age culture packages things um, <clears throat> and twists things, the meaning of things, uh, kind of like how I had shared with you prior to uh, the call today, how our, all of our weapons as Washashi people traditionally had hearts carved into them. And traditionally, if an enemy harmed our people or harmed a child or a woman or even somebody in, of our own people were unsafe for women or children, they risked having their head taken. And we would do that with the same weapon that had a heart it carved into it. And we did that because we knew we were doing it out of love. And that's what warriors did was anything it took to pr protect the innocent and the vulnerable. And we've been you know, brainwashed into thinking uh, warrior is somebody that can hold warrior pose for 20 minutes. I don't know, you know exactly how it's packaged now, but it's not what it used to be. Um, and uh we for to, to even 
further expound that thought, we, we live in a society that was created by predators and it has been created as the perfect climate for predators. I mean, you look at um, Jeffrey Epstein. That was a case I was involved in helping to expose here in New Mexico. And he operated for over 20 years with the Department of Justice, covering up his crimes at the highest level. Um, so this isn't just a 3HO problem. This is a societal problem. This is um, a problem where we need to look through that lens of knowing that this is a predatorial culture. And like you said, using that discernment um, to gain knowledge of what we really want to be involved in um, and still be able to say, well, maybe this part of it's good for me, but this part I need to, I need to take a closer look at it. Right. Or not participate in this way, but use it in this way or whatever, or completely not be able to do it at all as a part of your healing or whatever combination, but that, that it's whenever we see, I want to go back to your experience in, in teacher training, you did the research on the lawsuit, you found the lawsuit and we're talking about the Kate Felt lawsuit where it talks about rape and her, her rape and then Pamela Dyson. And um, this is 1985 and this lawsuit has been in public record for quite a while. And I want to just point this out again because um, this is public knowledge and the regurgitated language that the teachers brought right away when, when Vandy questioned it in 2011-ish is the same narrative that has been going on since 1985. And nobody questions the narrative. I didn't question the narrative. It was living in my below conscious that when a student of mine came and asked about it, I had no idea this thing was in public record at all because I was a kid that grew up in it. How would I know? So it's never talked about. It's become normalized to never talk about it. Here, Vandy brings it up in her teacher training and she's met with, the stories, the spin, right? Exactly. And I know cognitive dissonance is a strong drug, um, but still that's no, I mean, to me, that's no excuse. Like, can you say for listeners what cognitive dissonance sounds like or looks like? Sure. Cognitive dissonance is uh, maintaining your belief no matter what evidence is presented to you because the facts surrounding your belief are too painful to look at. <clears throat> and people can be in that state for years and decades and never notice, no? Generations, absolutely. Absolutely. Generations. Yes, I think it can be passed down generationally. See it in our own communities. Um, there was a sociologist who even coined a name for it, the uh, Anomi effect, where an oppressed population or an oppressed people is oppressed for so many generations, they lose their own culture and adopt the culture of the oppressors. And then those belief systems get passed down um, that are in, exact, in opposition to the traditional beliefs and then end up just canceling out the traditional beliefs so that the genocide continues without the effort of the oppressor. Um, so yes, the cognitive dissonance can definitely be generationally passed down, I do believe. That makes so much sense. So, okay, so it's 2011, you're in teacher training. What, what happens next? Um, 
Huh, well, I, uh, let's see, 2011, 2012, I took Amrit. And the reason I took Amrit, because um, I've been a martial artist since I was five. And um, I felt like I needed to make a commitment to a warrior society. And I felt this needing to belong. And I also felt so wrong about it too, because of the cultural appropriation and the fact that I was attacked about my eyebrows during like, <laughs> before the ceremony, I was heavily questioned about my eyebrows and my relationship to plucking. <laughs> and I was like, I'm trying to be, to commit my life as a warrior to protect people with my life. And you're worried about my eyebrows. Um, <laughs> so there was that. And I, at the time I was in a domestic violence relationship and I took Amrit with my partner. And um, things made more sense than they do now back then, my decisions. Um, if that makes any sense. Um, 100% sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was um, basic, I, I basically, and I still do speak for the super health. I give my testimony for the super health uh, training. So I started doing that and I just was around the community more uh, than I had been before. And uh, trying to think it was around 2016 um, I basically got the clear message that I should not charge to teach kundalini yoga anymore that I shouldn't wear a turban I shouldn't do any of that stuff it was just like the next evolution of my personal decolonization and reclaiming who I was and I started teaching decolonized yoga at uh, Standing Rock, the protest camp up in North Dakota back then. And I was teaching uh, decolonized yoga in a teepee for the uh, water protectors homeschool classroom and um, just started focusing more on giving the tools, sharing the tools that worked for me, combining it with other practices that I'd learned from um, Buddhist practices or reading books by Pima Chodron, just really started to integrate things, things I'd learned from Carl Jung, um, just realizing that I had my own style of teaching to offer and my own wisdom as an indigenous person to integrate into that and how, how paralleled some of the Eastern and Western teachings were and how I really wanted to bring that forward to the table. Uh, I believe that was also the year um, at uh, the 3HO summer solstice event. Uh, I had gone off to pray for some clarity around, you know, just how I felt about what was happening in the community. Um, my own um, not feeling aligned with things. And I remember it was around sunset and I had a uh, specific medicine with me and I usually don't cross the cultures, you know, like if I'm doing yoga, I do yoga. If I'm going to ceremony, I go to ceremony. I don't do yoga as ceremony and I don't have ceremony, you know, like I respect the cultures separately. 
and but that specific time I had taken medicine with me and I was praying at sunset and the mainstay in the big tent toppled down at the event and I was like okay that's the clear that's the sign that's the clarity I was asking for because that year the bazaar had like doubled in size and it became even more about like materialism and or this was my perception and the spirits of the land were not happy about it whatsoever they had been unhappy for a long time and um so I started really listening more to the things um in my life uh that I I was made to believe that if I listened to I would be crazy if that makes sense Um, in the community you were made to believe that if you listen to them not the community no just in Um, life just in life, like going to psychiatrists and counselors since I was a kid. Like if I started talking about the spirits of, and ancestors of the land speaking to me, I would be put on medications, right? Got and it. Got it. Right. Not very early on in my life that I needed to deny my spiritual experiences as an indigenous person because mm. I could be mm. up or medicated. Mm. So I really started listening deeper uh, that year. And, um, you know, just praying for, because as you know, I had known about the survivors that gained more and more knowledge, seen firsthand the reaction of the community and how it was just, you know, like complete blinders, like, and in teacher training, I should also mention another indicator I got every time the trainers would put a Yogi Bhajan lecture on. I had like Yogi Bhajan induced narcolepsy. Like I could be standing up and as soon as his voice would come on, I would pass out. And the main trainer kept getting so mad at me and like talking to me about how disrespectful it was. And I was like, I, I, I don't know. I can't explain it. I'll try standing up and I would literally fall asleep standing up or didn't matter how, what position I was in. I would literally conk out as soon as he started talking and come to as soon as the lecture was done. So I was like, and I also had Yogi Bhajan come to me in a dream when I was 18 years old. And before I even knew who or what any of this was. So I'd always known that there's, you know, something, there's always a behind the scenes story whenever um, I start looking into things. There's always something behind the scenes. So uh, anyways, I, uh, going back to that summer, I really started listening to what the land was saying, what the spirits were saying, and really praying um, for resolve. Because even though I was around the community, and and then there was a lot of um, microaggressions of like racism towards my family and I when we lived in the Sangat. Um, wow. This is in Española Sangat? Yeah, in Española Sangat. Like we didn't go to every Lungar. Like we weren't like super community members or anything but we lived in the community we, we rented space from one of the longtime community members and there were some community members that were really just wonderful to us but then there were others that um you could feel the racism in the glares um or there were some downright racist things that some older uh, Caucasian male members would say a couple times that I had brought visitors to Lungar and I was completely mortified like how could spiritual people even like 
say that, that out your mouth. <laughs> right. Like, and I'm apologizing to them and they're like, no, it's okay. And I'm like, no, it's not. And I'm like, <laughs> so there were a lot of experiences that had me just questioning this the sanity of a lot of the, a lot of the people and I don't know we kind of made a joke out of it like the seekier than thou crowd um yes it's, yeah. it's always our like as native people it's it's one of our survival skills to make a joke out of anything and like tease around and laugh about things so we did a lot of laughing about people's reactions or like if I saw somebody you know turn their nose up at us I would look at them and you know really point my nose up in the air and exaggerate their mannerisms and just kind of had fun with it because I mean, people take themselves too seriously. Yeah. So all that's going on and you start just becoming more and more of you and, and less like defined by the way that the teachings are supposed to look like recognize a lot of that kind of, um, uh, abusive behavior that exists in the world is showing up right here in this spiritual community through these people. And there's good ones and not good ones. And so you just kind of like, kind of try to wade yourself through it. Right. Right. And then by that time I had full knowledge of the Calsa versus Calsa lawsuit. And, you know, it was being published in the local uh, Santa Fe reporter. Um, so it was just kind of, um, more of the realization that uh, I guess mm, I'm trying to find a way to say it because I at the same time I had I had a lot of friends and people that I love in the community still participating in it as we're seeing more and more of this and we're still trying you know to love ev- the, the people that are still participating in it and still believing in a lot of this while we're experiencing the proof of it isn't what it is. I don't know if that makes sense, but hundred percent that like basically trying to like say this, what we are saying we are is not actually what's playing out. Right. For us. How our experience and um, yeah, it was, uh, it was just very interesting living in that community and really getting to see the inner workings of just how people even relate to each other and how there's uh, not a, a an integrity with what was packaged as the teachings, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just have to say, I came to that awareness at 15. And so you kind of like your approach to life is like, oh, you, you stay connected to the people that are living the truth and you realize there's plenty of people not living that truth. You know, at that time, I had no idea, though, the language I give it now is how much the teachings were infused with predatory behavior, that a lot of people were living their version of the teachings, but it was infused with that in, that deep levels of it's not just the front view. The back view is the actual pre- predatory infusion that was the inbred as much as the Guru Ramdas mantra or as much as Ong Namo, you know? Right, right. It was just, and nobody batted an eye at it. It was just like, it was so normal. Right. Anyway, it's interesting to hear you as, um, uh, you know, a person that had come from a lot of, you know, history, you know, generational trauma, 
generational racialized trauma, as well as um, many years on your own healing journey to find a pulse of yourself and how Kudalini yoga through the lens of recovery and healing was able to like be this jolt that said, Oh, I'm, I'm calling my spirit back to self. And yet within that very community that that quote teaching is living in are the very same predatory actions and patterns of narcissism and gaslighting and silencing what's in plain sight and generational abuse that's not being talked about. And so here you are as an indigenous woman noticing it saying, doesn't mean it's all bad, but I'm getting what I'm getting. And there's a bunch of people I love that aren't even noticing that these things are happening all over the place. Right. And I guess it was also the realization too, because we have all sorts of those issues in our communities um, from the poverty and the genocide and, you know, reservation life, literally living in POW camps um, and not having access to resources. And then I was like, well, maybe white privilege isn't all it's cracked up to be, you know, maybe the grass isn't really greener on the other side either over here. Um, And, you know, I had that feeling from the beginning, despite the euphoria I was getting from the practices. Um, and that, that's not to say that other practices, other spiritual, um, teachings can't provide the same, uh, spiritual awakening as Kundalini Yoga did. Like my Sifu, you know, without really knowing much about Kundalini Yoga, he's like, your practice is what gives you an edge on the rest of my students. Um, and we, I could put transcendental meditation in there, or I could put Qigong in there, or I could put, I feel like there's so many practices and spiritual belief systems that believe that you can um, rewrite your energy through repetitive movement and sounds. Like it's found in Jainism, it's found in Buddhism. The Aztecs even had their own form of yoga with their martial arts before the church came and burned scrolls of, you know, hundreds of years of knowledge. So every culture has had something similar to a practice of yoga called something different, but working with that life force energy. Um, so again, it's, it was just something that somebody said, Ooh, th- this is going to make a really good business model. And a lot of people are going to, you know, support this. And at some point I realized this is not mine to charge for the, the some of these practices do have a long history, you know, in Sanskrit culture, uh, Hindu culture, and it's knowledge that's been shared with me. So I'm going to share it with others. And that's, you know, part of that decolonized yoga. And, And as far, if I ever reach the point to where I am proficient enough to teach martial arts, I'm never going to charge for that because that's not my culture. Um, if, I become a good enough seamstress in our Osage ribbon ways that are featured in the Smithsonian, I'll charge to teach somebody that because that is my culture. And that's something that, you know, I put time in to learn to preserve that, you know, I can say my ancestors have been doing, but I'm not going to exploit what's been packaged. Um, Even with Reiki, you know, Reiki doesn't come from my culture. I give it away now. I'm on a team of people and we're a co-op and we just give away Reiki all day long. Um, So that's, I guess that was my growth process in um, 
through being associated with the Kundalini yoga community, through watching survivors such as yourself reclaim your power and own your stories and share and wake people up to what's really going on, I was also able to gain more self-awareness and how I was participating in those things and how those things didn't necessarily feel good for me and make the changes in my own life to come into alignment with the values that I say I have. Um, so granted, obviously the community was and is very you know, flawed in the ethos and the packaging and delivery of someone else's culture and all these things. I don't regret my experiences with the community um, and with connecting with other survivors because I, you know, I believe that we're the ones that are going to make this world a better place for future generations through our experiences. I can't agree more and, and thank you for that. When you said you had met some early survivors, were these people that had been abused directly from Yogi Bhajan or just people that had been in the community and then left before for with various stories? Um, she wasn't a direct uh, victim of Yogi Bhajan, but um, it happened in, in boarding school. The offense that happened to her happened over in the boarding school and it was it. You know, covered up by the community. Got it. So you were hearing some of that uh, internal um, abuse that that kids had been abused that nobody was speaking out loud about, but a lot everybody knew what it had happened. And because you were forming relationships in the community at the time, you met people there like that. Right. Right. Got it. And so 2020 point. wasn't a surprise. You, you yeah. by that time, was there anything that that uh, the book Premka or that the Facebook group that it, that that brought to light that you didn't already have dealt with over the years since you're talking about this, this time is around 2016 as you're decolonizing and extracting and, and finding what's true for you. I, I would say the uh, direct assault on children was um, when I learned about that, that was, I didn't, I didn't know about Yogi Bhajan perpetrating directly on children. Um, and, and the grooming of, of our children into right service, right. Um, that part I found extremely disturbing. Of course, um, I, I had known about survivors that had, I don't know if you want to call it secondary abuse or, um, you know, had been victimized and it was covered up and I thought that was horrific enough, but then to find out. The, the new information that I found out um, was very, it was just, it was disturbing. And to know that people um, chose to cover that up was even more disturbing. Not surprising because, you know, I was groomed by a family friend. So the things that human beings are capable of does not surprise me whatsoever. But um, yeah, it was uh, extremely disturbing. And to know that so many, and, and not just in the 3HO community, even working as a therapist in Santa Fe, I found out how many people in positions of authority that are abusers that have been protected. Why do we live in a culture that protects predators and who throws children to the wolves? Um, right. 
that's that's you know and nothing's sacred everything has got a dollar mark everything now. can be bought i read something on 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 um sexual trafficking around how the commodity can be sold over and over and over again and so why it's such a large uh, increase and why so much at high levels of power, there's so much covering it. And, and it, it just, it, it started to like, this was so much unraveling and I didn't have a lens into the, the world of childhood trafficking. My, but my conception was really kind of more, a bit more of what's sensationalized in the world. Again, one of these kind of like narratives that's implanted in us that we don't really realize Um that my idea of sexual trafficking was that men, women, or children could be, you know, taken into a van and shipped to, an, you know, driven to another state and held in some sort of captivity or maybe shipped to another country where they don't know where they are and they're drugged. And then, so while that may be one version of sex trafficking, it's, it's not the version that's happening all around us all the time. There's the version that you're talking about. And if you could shed light on that a little bit, I think it's about piercing the veils of our own illusions. And those illusions have to have never been called into question because those illusions got implanted. We didn't come up with them. They got given to us through inbred culture. Right. Uh, and again, even trafficking is something that's been completely normalized to where if we see it in its purest form, we don't think it is what it is. And I'll explain that. Um, so the definition of trafficking uh, is the profit off of human labor for sexual acts um, or um, mainly working and for sexual acts through threats of violence, duress, um, and actual violence. Um, so when, when I put it into that context, and I, I think I talk about this in my book a little bit for profit pri prison systems to me is a form of state sanctioned human trafficking. We have individuals, if you look at the, uh, adverse childhood experience studies, we know that 99% of people that are homeless and addicted to drugs were sexually abused before three years old. So this creates this lifetime of victimization and then there's no resources. We don't have the resources needed to address that type of trauma within our society. And that type of trauma is more prevalent than we would like to think. So then these individuals just get shipped off to jail and become a commodity for the state to make money off of and they never get the actual treatment that they need. And I almost became one of those people. I was facing um, a prison sentence of five years when I was 17 years old. And I luckily had a former director of a treatment center that I had been in caught word through my juvenile probation officer that I was about to be adjudicated as an adult. Uh, and she came and advocated for me and uh, testified to the judge that the system had failed me. She didn't use the word trafficking back then. There wasn't that definition for trafficking. It was called child prostitution. And we know now that children cannot make the decision to become professional sex workers because they are under the age of 18. So, you know, that they can't sign a lease. So why could they make the decision to become a sex worker? So that uh, dialogue has changed. Mm. But um, the... <sighs> 
the um, entire the entire system, even the foster care system, 60% of children in foster care are sold into child sex trafficking. Everything, every system that we have put in place now that we've uh, grown up with that for generations it, that has become a normalized piece of our existence is a component of child sex trafficking. Um, and to, to really understand that means that we're going to have to allow our society to collapse and create something better. And that's a really scary thought for most people. Mm. Uh, and it's almost 60, like, where do we begin? 60% of children in foster care are sold into trafficking. Yes. And we're talking about like through their own foster families and these types, like, so we're talking about the places that are set up for care are actually the exact environments in which drugs and um, sex are enforced as a way for controlling, grooming, e even just like basic forms of kindness, right? Grooming begins, say it's a neighbor, and then they're giving, that's the place you run to when you need help. And then that person who you think is the helper actually becomes the very person who is the predator and sells that child to somebody else for sex or for free labor. And so this is what I mean. This is what I'm pointing out as listeners. The conception in my mind was that strangers abduct somebody, but more often than not, trafficking is happening all around us with children that we meet in everyday life that are being exploited by the very systems that are there for caring for them. Absolutely. And um, not only foster families, there's familial trafficking too, and that happens. Unfortunately, I would say there's a, a high rate even in the area around the community in Española because of the poverty, the intergenerational trauma, and the drug addiction. And those are the perfect recipes for familial trafficking. Uh, I just spoke with a young woman I work with in Florida, and she's dealing with the same situation, helping her get her nonprofit work off the ground um, and her teenage boyfriend's 19 year old girlfriend is being shot up with heroin by her family and beaten and continue continually told these lies that I'm guessing she's been told since childhood so she's been groomed since childhood by her own family that's keeping her strung out on heroin and I'm I'm going to assume is doing that for a reason to, to profit off of her to profit off of her addiction and that's often the reason why families get children started on drugs at an early age to continue having um, a commodity to, to profit off of, to exploit. And the reason that's done is they were used as an exploited commodity and they never, you know, had the resources to recognize that they needed to heal or what their own value was. So there's just so many things that we need to unpack in mm -hmm. our society um, yeah. and, it, and in our it, own bodies right in our own bodies because you know one of one of our primary beliefs is Vishashi people is as above so below as within so without you know and if we're not doing this work internally it's not going to happen out here so mm -hmm. yeah th these conversations these difficult and uncomfortable conversations are where 
the healing lies and where we can, you know, stop and put ourselves outside of our own perspective to um, find the wisdom in the suffering, because that that's how we attain wisdom. And we've always known that as indigenous people, um, we simulate suffering in our own ceremonies for uh, to have a vision, you know, and to gain that wisdom from creator, but we know that we have to suffer for it. And um, I think that's a huge part of Western culture is avoiding pain, avoiding difficult to talk about things, avoiding things that don't necessarily look pretty um, or don't sound fun or exciting. Um, we're always looking for the next experience, but really the, the true experience, the true wisdom lies in the things that are painful and cause suffering and that aren't really that fun to talk about. Yeah, that are innately uncomfortable because it's piercing the veil of your own perspective, right? And it's like, what in life is going to give you the next shake that says, oh, I have another way to see the same thing. And that's what really so much stood out to me about just everything you've shared within your own story. And I can't encourage listeners enough to, to, to not get, to go out and, you know, get a copy of, of Vandy's book and really allow her words to penetrate you to, to shake up the worldviews that have been implanted in you that maybe it makes you end up within a spiritual community seeking refuge thinking that this is going to be the safe place only for it to reemerge as predatory experiences over again you know and it's because these these memories are encoded in us, in old ancient forms of, of, of traumatic generational history that many of us don't even have recollection of, you know, and, and I love what you said about, you know, we're all indigenous to somewhere. We're all, it's about us getting connected to knowing that this wisdom is ours and to differentiate between how we choose to practice and relate to the wisdom that we're drawn to next to help us through that next stage of our own healing. Absolutely. What did you find were your, the responses of your teachers that you had, that you were most impactful for you in the Kundalini community when all this came forth, were they open to the conversation or did you notice um, anything particular? Uh, anything more you want to say on that? Uh, I noticed some of the trainers that I had known previous or um, before the um, revelation in the community, some have just been very silent on the issue. And as you said in the beginning, um, it looks like they're assuming a position of neutrality, just continuing as business as usual type thing. Um, a couple of the women um, that I'm closest to, they've really leaned into it. And when they were perpetuating the gaslighting stories before or the or urban myths before, um, they opened themselves up to the new information and were constantly asking how they could be better allies and um, leaning into those conversations about the racism and about the sexual abuse and the cover-up and um so a couple of the women really I'm, I'm just really proud of them for their growth and um it just shows me that 
you know, no matter what age we are in life, we can, we can keep learning. You know, we, we have the ability to learn and to grow until our last breath. Um, so yeah, I've been disappointed with, uh, I guess I would say the majority of trainers that I knew before, um, with their silence, um, and lack of position, but a few, uh, a handful of, um, mainly women, a couple men too, have really leaned into it and just wanted to be better allies or left the community completely, or, you know, um, take what, what works and, you know, are calling out the rest of everything that doesn't, you know, and trying to find that balance. So, yeah, it's been a mixed response. I would say more people being silent about it, but there's a couple that I'm really proud of. Um, is there anything that you would wish for, for the community? <sighs> um, of course, resolution and just absolute healing to where, you know, I look back on all my traumatic experiences and I can on honestly say I'm grateful for each one of those. And I know that can't, that can't be where everybody's at. Um, but I guess my wish is just that everybody finds peace and feels resolve and feels like their experience has made a difference and that um, the people that are still holding on to uh, the false narratives that, that they grow as well. Um, because if they're holding on to those false narratives, it just tells me how much they're willing to unconsciously harm people, you know, and how, how many communities, not just the three HO survivors, but how they've harmed, you know, communities um, of color or, you know, and, and not even giving it a second thought. So I, I, um, I definitely wish them healing too. Um, because yeah, you can't, we, we can't move forward collectively as humanity if people are still really attached to being a part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. Well, I would love to, um, wrap up here shortly. Is there more you'd like to, um, share or anything more you'd like to highlight that about your experience, um, and 3HO and Kundalini Yoga life. I think, I think we touched on everything. You are such a wonderful host and I'm so grateful to get to be on your show and um, the, whatever little part I've played in the community and, you know, no matter, like I said, no matter, um, I'm just grateful for that. I got to grow along with you guys um, at whatever point I came in and, you know, being, being a perpetual outsider. Um, yeah. It just, uh, it feels good to somehow be a part of the community, but not the community. I didn't want to be a part of If That makes sense. <laughs> Thank you. A new improved community. I could be a part of because <laughs> I didn't want to be a part of the old one. <laughs> I, I feel such resonance with you. It, it, just the other day, I was writing in my own bio around uh, something around always being an outsider. And as I break apart my experience and look at it for what it really is, instead of 
the lens I was taught to see it through, you know, it helped me to see how much I was attached to my uh, otherness otherness narrative and how that is so tied to exceptionalism and ways to be able to kind of like ride the high wave of not really dealing with what's beneath the surface of where we come from and who I really am versus who I've been taught to be and who I've become because of trauma versus who my soul is. And so you just, you bring such richness to this conversation and um, an, an indigenous language and reverence that allows us all to find that within our own selves. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really, really just appreciate the opportunity and just the best of best of everything to all the survivors and healing to the offenders and um, that the, the highest truth and universal justice is the ultimate outcome of everything. Yeah, and I, I heard something on a survivor's call the other day, Vandy, around, um, you know, the the ch- coming together both on all sides of this conversation to, to be extracting and constantly asking the question or putting the question up in prayer around what was true and what was wrong. And like, how do we, going back to the question, how do we extract love from abuse when our experiences are all commingled in those same places so that we still have ourselves intact. And it's a slow attention. And what I've come to learn or call this, it's a stewardship. It's being better stewards of self. And you bring in that much larger historical lens of that, that we are stewards of the land. We are stewards of this wisdom that lives in our body and how we what your path is to get reminded of that wisdom in you is a unique one. And we can make this community wrong or that community wrong or that predator or this, that, and the other, but there's hidden gems in all these places. And so it's with and for each other. We help each other do this. Your story is going to help other people do that within the context of their pain in Kundalini yoga. Absolutely. And I'll just leave this last that I always bring myself back to this reminder, this quote from um, Mother Teresa, who, you know, there's been stories about her not being the best character of characters, but this is a beautiful quote. The great paradox of love is once we love through all the pain, that's all that remains is love. And something that has taught me so deeply about what love is and what love isn't because Hollywood has us all messed up about what love is in the Lakota language, which I learned along with my husband and daughter, along with my own language, which they're both very similar and the similarities are just beautiful, but in their language, there's no word for, I love you. It's uh, te I will suffer with you. And that's the expression of love. That's the highest expression of love is I will suffer with you. And out of that suffering comes the greatest love. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you again. Uh, it's always just a joy to connect with you. Introduce us to your song and we're going to close out by listening to it. Okay. The song is um, by Lila, Lila June Johnson. Excuse me. She's um, from the Diné tribe uh, here in New Mexico. And uh, the song, there's a story behind it. Her mom told me the story. It's just beautiful. She went and she filmed this uh, video for the song over in Europe. 
And a few years later, she started tracing back her genealogy. And it turns out that her European American side on her dad's side was from that same village where she filmed that song in. So her body intuitively took her to that land to sing about all the women who've been demonized throughout history. And that's the intuitive intelligence, that indigenous intelligence that is within us all. So that's why I chose that song as a reminder. How beautiful. Let's go ahead and listen. And we're going to listen to more of it. And you can always catch it on the Uncomfortable Conversations playlist on Spotify as well. Um, well, this is going to be on YouTube. So I'll put the show notes on YouTube. Um, uh, the YouTube link, rather, in the show notes. Here we go. Six million women thrown to the flames The library is burning, I'll remember their names The first colonization of the human race Didn't happen in America, it happened in the place of mom Mamula The people's land The people's soil I hear you calling We've been afraid to look at the past And see the truth that's there But take my hand, let's walk the land Now you don't have to be scared There's an ancient motherland that we have forgotten And great-grandmothers burned at the stake For holding the earth in their hands For holding the earth in their hands For holding the earth in their hands Persecuted as witches Warlocks and killers But these were not evil people These were Europe's healers these were Europe's healers, they were healers We descend from healers and This old heart of mine, it weeps away And this old heart of mine, it feels the of all of our ceremonies going up in flames But feeling is healing and these tears are falling like rain So let it rain on this land. 
That was just so beautiful. I just love the feeling is healing. And let that be a reminder to all of us listening, you know, to wake up and learn how to create safety inside to feel all the things that we've been conditioned and told that we aren't allowed to feel. Yes. And as Vandy shared with us today, to remember that the, the ways that we've been taught not to trust ourselves is that wisdom that we are training ourselves to learn to pay attention to. <clears throat> and it can be challenging to think we find sanctuary and, and realize it's only more violation and the same story repeating itself. And I invite you to really listen to and support the work of Andy Crane because she's bringing a much larger conversation to this very, very challenging intersection of love and abuse and generational trauma that has gone on in silence and in dark territories um, where powerful people prevent it from being talked about. It's a much bigger conversation than just 3HO and Kundalini Yoga, and yet it doesn't minimize any of our experience within this culture that we grew up in or spent decades of our lives in. So it's important to hear a lens like hers to say, wow, she found refuge and yet could identify with the very abusive behavior in that same place. And this isn't easy things to begin to notice. And the more we do this work, the more we begin to notice it's everywhere. As she said, predatory behavior is everywhere. It's in the very cultures and societies that are um, propped up to teach us and have indoctrinated us otherwise. And that's a real mind fuck, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> and the unwinding of that is reclamation. And remembering the land and the ancient wisdom, that's rematriation. It's coming together and realizing this, this wisdom of, our, of, our, of going into the wound is something we're made of. It belongs to us. It belongs to us. So thank you, Vandy. Um, do you want to go ahead and tell everybody where they can um, find your book? It'll all be in the show notes, but go ahead and share your website and any other work that you'd like um, them to know that, that is existence. Okay, let's see. Um, the Rise and Love Foundation website is riseandlovefoundation.org. You can order the book directly off uh, the website. Um, if you want to order it directly from me, you can just email me from the website, and that way you can get an author signed copy. Uh, it is available on Amazon. However, I don't encourage people to go to Amazon. I wanted to not have my book on Amazon, but it was a part of the publishing package, so I couldn't really take it apart. Um, but I don't really want more money going to Jeff Bezos to play Space Cowboy. Uh, that's totally on you. It is available at pretty much any other book outlet online, including Target, 
um, Barnes and Nobles, Abe Books, uh, and a few other sites. Um, and also check out the documentary, Women of the White Buffalo, as um, Gurun Sean mentioned, our daughter and I are featured in that movie as two of the Women of the White Buffalo, um, our stories of survival and thriving and keeping culture alive and living prophecy in these very powerful times. So again, thank you and um, just the best to everybody and healing all the way around for all. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So appreciate your voice. Thank you. You too. Take care. This concludes another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. And if you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. Talk to you soon.